February of 1997, Kathleen Hempkin had to have surgery. When they did the surgery, they discovered that there was cancer on her liver and her pancreas. And they simply closed her back up. And our church began to pray and began to ask God to do something supernatural as we have done with so many other people. We are never in control of God's answer. We are only in control of our willingness to pray and seek the Lord. And coming out of that surgery, Kathleen was very sick. Marty Estes was in the room with her and Kathleen at that point started talking about the fact that she could not even pray for herself and yet Marty talked to her about the fact that, you know, there are other people praying for you right now. That was in February of 1997. There's been prayer. There have been the doubt casters. There have been people who know better. But there's always God. And there's always the Lord who says, I will determine the path of a man or a woman. I will decide the length and breadth of life. I will determine what happens, and I will get all the praise and glory. And so, uh, John, I'm going to let you share it. You come up here. We had had a, a CT scan just a, a couple weeks ago, and uh, I was home Thursday, just happened to be up here at church, went back home, and so a phone call came, and it was the doctor's office with the results of, of the CT scan and the blood uh, workup, and I called for Kathleen, and uh, for some reason she couldn't hear me or whatever, and I thought, well, we could have her call back or what have you, but the nurse volunteer, whoever was given the, the news, volunteered, well, if you're her husband, I can tell you. And, and uh, what was nice, folks, is all the other times, if you've heard Kathleen's testimony, I was always the Johnny-come-lately. I never got to be anywhere <laughs> in, in this. And uh, the news, and, and I got the chance to hear it first, is her blood work all came back normal, and the specifics word, word was uh, no evidence of any masses, uh, no evidence of any cancer. And so we just praise the Lord for that. praise you and thank you, we should never be surprised. Father, forgive us when we do not intercede on behalf of people like we should. Lord, it's probably shaming to us to know how many miracles we may have missed because we didn't 
take it to you in prayer and because we didn't let you speak to our heart. Lord, as sure as the word was on that day when you spoke to Kathleen's heart and told her in spite of the evidence, you are going to heal her. I pray that that word would be as sure to somebody today who is struggling with guilt, with shame, with sin. God, personalize your word to individuals who need to hear from you in this hour. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 John chapter 1. We're going to look at overcoming the obstacle of guilt. Overcoming the obstacle of guilt. We've been talking all this summer about the different obstacles that come into our lives, and this is one of those that haunts us day and night. And if you have lived for any length of time at all, you know what it's like to feel guilty. If you don't, you're not living in reality. Because all of us have something or some moment or some incident in our lives where we're ashamed and guilt begins to come into our lives and and guilt can take hold of us and motivate us to do a lot of things that God never intended us to do. They asked a little girl who had sold 11,200 boxes of Girl Scout cookies how she had done it. She said, I look people straight in the eye and I lay guilt on them. Noel Coward, the great English playwright, sent an anonymous note to 12 distinguished men in England. And he said in the note simply this, your secret has been discovered. Flee while you can. All 12 left London. Isn't it amazing how guilt is a way that people are motivated and manipulated? We don't want to do anything to embarrass our family. We don't want to do anything to embarrass the church. We don't want to do anything to embarrass our alma mater. We don't want to do anything to embarrass the school. All the guilt motivation that comes, and quite frankly, guilt motivation preaching has worked for a long time. But we are so immersed in guilt in this society about we're overweight or we're this or we're that or we've got all these things that are thrown at us. We've just almost become so burdened down that we think that living with guilt is a part of living. But it doesn't have to be. God never intended it for it to be. In fact, the Word of God gives us God's answer and God's remedy to guilt. Now, there are three kinds of guilt. The first is false guilt. This is guilt that's imposed on us by others or it comes through manipulation or unreasonable expectations. False guilt. Secondly, there is liability guilt. Liability guilt says somehow I've got to pay for the wrong that I've done. A professor at the University of California, L.A., did a study revealing that 25% of one-car accidents in Los Angeles are the result of a driver acting out selfish, self-destructive behavior because of guilt. A lot of our physical symptoms and emotional problems can come from repressed guilt. Shakespeare said that guilt in the mind is like a mind full of scorpions. I've got to pay for something. And a lot of people are trying to do good and trying to to give things and, and go places and serve all because they're motivated by guilt and they feel like maybe I'll feel better about myself if I go and do these things. 
liability guilt, but there is authentic guilt. We would better call that the conviction of sin. When there is sin in our lives that keeps us from walking in fellowship with God, and in fact, we are guilty of sinning, but God has given us a remedy. 1 John chapter 1 and verse 4. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you, that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Now somewhere by verse 7, you ought to note that that may be one of the most concise statements on God's remedy for guilt ever written. Verse 7 says, If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. There's no breaking of the fellowship between us. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. There's no breaking of the fellowship with God. Now you see, the lost are out of fellowship with God because they're out of a relationship. They don't have a relationship with God. But saved people get out of fellowship with God. The relationship's not broken, but their fellowship is broken by sin. Now, there are four things that this divine light does for us. First of all, it ends the bondage of our fear. God is light, verse 5, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. In John chapter 1 and verse 4, Jesus, uh, John records in him was life and the life was the light of men and the light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it. Darkness is where most people live. And in the night, we live in fear because of things we cannot see or we think might be there. Darkness brings out the worst in man. Crime goes up. Rebellion goes up. Man loves to sin in the dark. And man stays in darkness until God comes and shines his light. Light is not only a source of growth for plants, but light purifies. And light gives power. And when we walk in the light, it breaks us out of the bondage of fear. In 1 Peter 2.9, it says that God calls us out of darkness into his light. In 1 Thessalonians 5.5, 5, it says we are children of light. In John chapter 3 and verse 19 through 21, those who do wrong hate the light. In Ephesians 5, verses 8 through 13, it tells us that when the light shines on us, it reveals our true nature. You see, the light ends the bondage of fear. Now, sometimes guilt is authentic because we're guilty. But God does not want his people living under the bondage of guilt and fear and shame. And that is the way a lot of people live their lives. They're in bondage. They're ashamed of their past. They're afraid of their future. 
They live in fear that somebody might find out. They're motivated by guilt and they try to cover up and put on facades. But you see, when you've broken the bondage of fear, and God does not give us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind, then the second thing that divine light does is it exposes the backsliding of our faith. Once we say, Lord, I'm not afraid to deal with my life. I'm not afraid to deal with what you say to me. Then God begins to expose to us where we are backsliding. Now, here's how God does it. God speaks specifically. God does not speak in generalities. Sometimes we hear people confess sin, and we're not really sure what they're confessing. But when you confess sin, you confess specific sin. General confession doesn't nail what specific sin is. Lord, forgive me of my sins. Well, let's name them. Let's just go ahead and talk about what they are. You see, David wasn't afraid to confess his sin. And what happens is in verses 6, 8, and 10, you find a progression of what sin does to us and how we get further and further immersed in our guilt. The first thing that happens to us in verse 6, we lie to other people. We lie to other people about our fellowship with God. We come to church and we pretend and, and we act and we put on our front and we put on our Sunday facade and, and our best and we try to go about the business of saying to people, hey, I'm okay and you're okay. Everybody's okay here. I'm doing fine. My spiritual life is great. How are you doing? Oh, we're doing wonderful. God's being so good to me. But on the inside, that's not really true, is it? Then in verse 8, we begin to lie to ourselves. We lie to ourselves about our spiritual condition. There's self-deception. Now, one of the things that happens, sin gate leads to lie gate. <laughs> okay? To use the media's terms. When you sin and you lie to other people, that leads to lying to yourself. And you're immersed in your own deception. And you begin to think, hey, I really am okay. What God says is not really true. I, I can justify this. I, I can account for this. I, I, can, I can see how this can work in my life. By the way, lying to other people and lying to God are only one step away. They're very close to one another. When you begin to be comfortable to lie to other people about your relationship to God, then you're very comfortable lying to yourself, which leads to the third one, and that's lying to God. Verse 10, you're calling God a liar. God says, here's sin in your life. I'm not guilty of that. I'm not guilty of that. I haven't done that. And we resist the truth. But only by walking in the light can we see the lies that we hide behind. Now let's take David, for instance. David was a great king. He was a great leader. He was a man after God's own heart. But he lied to others, didn't he? He lied to others. He tried to pretend that things had not happened with Bathsheba the way that they had. He tried to pretend that, that what appeared to be wasn't really the way it appeared to be. He tried to lie to other people. I'm sure he went to church and went to, didn't go to church. He went to the tabernacle and he made his offerings and his sacrifices and he went through all the motions of keeping the Jewish law, trying to keep up a front that everything was okay in King David's life. He lied to others. He started lying to himself started believing that he could get away with murder and adultery. And then ultimately, he lied to God. And in Psalm 32, he says, I acknowledge my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. How do you get rid of guilt? You quit lying to other people. You quit lying to yourself. And you quit lying to God. 
if you want to get rid of guilt, you have to quit trying to play the game of I'm a Christian who is okay with God when you're not. You see, we can't stand honesty. The church is sometimes not geared for honesty. We're afraid of it. But honesty is what sets you free. I'm not talking about being brutal. I'm just talking about being honest. You know, just be honest. This is what I'm going through. This is, this is what I'm struggling with. Being vulnerable. Quit lying to others. Quit lying to yourself. Don't self-deceive. Don't get caught in, in that self-deception. And don't lie to God. When God points out something, don't say, Lord, that's not it. That's not true. That's not so. David was set free from the backsliding of his faith because he got honest. David was a great sinner, but he was a greater repenter. And that's why David was great in the eyes of God because when he was confronted with sin, he didn't try to hold on to it. Thirdly, the divine light expresses the bond of our fellowship. Now, let's say God's revealed to us our fear and we've been delivered from that, the backsliding of our faith, and we've confessed and done that. Now, the divine light begins to do something positive and expresses the bond of our fellowship. Verse 7, if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from 90% of our sin. Does yours say all? Anybody have a Bible that doesn't say all? Anybody out here got a Bible that doesn't say all? says part, some, only the ones he feels like. Oh, it does say all, doesn't it? You know what it says in the Greek? All. <laughs> he cleanses us from all our sins. Now, let's say I've gone to God and I've recognized my backsliding, I've recognized my guilt, I know that there's a problem in my life, and I've come clean with the Lord. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. So I've come clean with God, but I still feel guilty. That's false guilt. That's false guilt. God didn't put that guilt there. God does not bring to mind that which he has already forgotten. That's false guilt. Now, in chapter 2 and verse 1 of 1 John, we see two titles for Jesus Christ that are very significant if you're going to overcome guilt. The first one is the title Advocate. The second one is the word propitiation. Look at it, if you would. Chapter 2 and verse 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. John is saying, hey kids, don't sin. I I'm writing all this so you don't have to sin. Don't do it. But he didn't stop there, did he? He said, and if, and you probably will at some point, and if anyone sins, well, tough luck. Too bad, so sad. Sorry, that's just the way it's going to have to be. You know, you're just going to have to walk around with guilt for the rest of your life. It's not what he said, is it? And if anyone sins, we have an advocate. With the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. This is how God takes away guilt. First word, advocate. By the way, he's an advocate for believers only. This is the same word he uses for the Holy Spirit in John chapter 14 and John chapter 15. It means one called along beside. A better term that we would understand today is a lawyer. Jesus is our lawyer. He's our advocate. If you go to a court of law, 
I would hope that you're smart enough to not think that you can defend yourself, that you would take an advocate with you to stand beside you to speak on your behalf. Let him figure it out. That's what you're paying him to do. Let him figure out how to talk to the judge in a way that you're not held in contempt. Let him negotiate the process. Jesus Christ is your advocate. He stands beside you at the court of heaven where God is the judge and God says sin has to be judged and sin has to be paid for. And Jesus Christ paid it. That's the second word, propitiation. And now Jesus Christ stands, notice, as an advocate with the Father. That literally means that God the Father and God the Son are nose to nose, face to face. He doesn't approach the bench and stand on a lower level from the judge the way we do in our court system. He is equal status, nose to nose with the Father, and he pleads our case on our behalf. Jesus Christ is your advocate. And what this says is we have an advocate. It literally reads we have an advocate now. Not just when we stand before God when we're dead. We have an advocate right now whenever we need him. He's not just sympathetic. He has power to forgive. Now turn to Romans chapter 8 and verse 31. Romans chapter 8 and verse 31. Because see, today you're either standing aware of grace or you are aware of guilt. And you're standing right now before God. You are either standing with a great awareness of grace or you're standing with a greater awareness of guilt. But the grace, the song says, is greater than all our sin. Romans chapter 8 and verse 31, you know these verses. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, finish it for me. If God's for us, let everything come against us. Let them file all the charges they want to file. But if God's for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but freely delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Jesus Christ is he who died. Yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God who also intercedes for us. You see, Jesus Christ represents me before the throne, and he declares me not guilty. If I'm saved and this advocate is only for believers, then God has declared me not guilty. You understand? So quit walking around with a guilt pack on your back. God's declared you not guilty. Now, he either has or he hasn't. He said, you're not guilty. He has taken all our sin and put them under the blood of Jesus and says, you're not guilty. You say, well, how can he do that? Well, let me tell you how. Jesus can do that because he's related to the judge. You see, this is kind of like that town you never want to get a speeding ticket in, you know? This is, uh, you want to talk about a good old boy system. There is one in heaven. God the Father and God the Son have got a deal worked out. Anybody that the devil brings before them that is a believer and is trusted in Jesus Christ for forgiveness and cleansing of sin, the, the defense attorney and the judge have already got it worked out. No matter what Satan says, he's not guilty. Yeah, but you don't know about all this. And, you know, Satan will just bring, oh, you don't know about what he's, why are you over here doing it? You know, oh, I know everything and more. 
and he's still not guilty. You see, Jesus Christ knows things about you that Satan doesn't know, and he still says you're not guilty. He's an advocate. By the way, have you thanked your advocate lately? He hadn't sent you a bill yet. But he's pronounced you clean and clear and free of sin. Past, present, future. God says, I'm going to deal with it all at the cross. Jesus Christ became your advocate. He's the best friend you'll ever have because he knows the worst about you. And he doesn't present you before the judge in your condition. He presents you before the judge through his blood. And that's how you're cleansed. second word is propitiation. The word propitiation in the dictionary means to appease somebody who is mad. But that's not a good picture of God. It's not a good biblical definition. God is angry, but he's angry at sin, not at sinners. God loves sinners. That's what John 3.16 tells us. Biblically, the word propitiation simply means to satisfy God's holy law. God's law, God's commandments, God's standards were satisfied in Jesus Christ, not in the sacrifices of animals, not in the giving of offerings, but in the shedding of blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. There is no satisfying of the law, and God satisfied all the conditions of the holy law. God is light. He cannot overlook sin, but God is love, and he wants to save, so he's satisfied everything in the person of Jesus Christ. Just give you these two verses. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 1 Corinthians 15, 3, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. You need to write this down somewhere. Jesus Christ never brings up a sin he has already placed under the blood. Jesus Christ never brings up a sin he has already placed under the blood. Now, the reason we remember those sins is one of two reasons. Either the devil is trying to bring it up out of our past or because we have a memory and we don't forget anything, that comes up. But the guilt of sin is gone. Jesus Christ never brings up a sin he has already placed under his blood. So if you have gone to God and said, now Lord, here's my sin, here's what I've done. I've done this and this and this and this. God says, that's it, it's forgiven, it's cleansed, it's as far as east is from west. It's cast into a sea of forgiveness. He remembers it no more. There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. You just go on and on and on and on through the scriptures and you find out when God puts it under the blood, it stays there. Now, if, you, if it keeps coming back on you, let me tell you how to turn that around. If you've confessed something, and I mean the devil just keeps bringing it up, say, yeah, you, you can't witness, you can't serve, you can't do this, because I know this about your life, that instead of listening to the enemy accuse you, turn around immediately and say, you know, Lord, the devil just reminded me of something I did last week that you've already forgiven me of, and I just want to one more time tell you thanks for forgiving me for that because I've forgotten how you'd forgiven me and the devil reminded me. Satan, thank you for reminding me how good the grace of God is. That in Greek is called nanny nanny poo poo. Hey, Lord, thanks for reminding me. Have you ever thought about that? The devil brings up, can you imagine the anguish in hell when the devil gets does something and then it's used against him? You got anything that you've asked God to forgive you of and the devil keeps bringing it up? 
You got anything that you've just, boy, you've begged and you've begged and you've begged and you've asked God to forgive you. Listen, he forgave you the first time. Oh, you just keep, oh, man, I, you know, maybe I didn't beg hard enough. As if you've got anything to do with forgiveness. God has everything to do with forgiveness. You're just a helpless vessel at the mercy of the throne. He said, boy, devil, I just, man, I'm so glad you reminded me about, about that thing right there. I am so glad you're, Lord, I thank you that the devil reminded me that I had done that because, you know, Lord, I was just kind of coasting here for a while and kind of thinking I was doing okay in my life, but Lord, I thank you that the devil reminded me of that. And God, your blood and your forgiveness and your grace and your goodness is all the more real to me today because I know that the devil can't stand the fact that you've forgotten it. And so I'll just remind him that it's forgiven. Now, your prosecuting attorney may chase you all over the face of this earth, but once you've been declared not guilty, he can't bring you into court and try you again for that crime. You're not guilty. End of discussion. Which brings us to the last thing. The divine light entirely cleanses of sin. If we confess our sins... He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This cleansing is two-sided. First of all, it's judicial. It's judicial. It speaks of justification, that we are declared to be right with God. But secondly, it's personal. If we, if I, confess my sins, He is faithful and just to forgive me of my sins and to cleanse me from all unrighteousness. It's personal. God has cleansed us. He has forgiven us. Now, let me tell you something. The difference between God and the way man reasons is very obvious. Psychology can help you deal with your guilt feelings, but it cannot take away your guilt. Well, you can go and you can sit down and say, oh, I just feel so guilty about this, and I feel so guilty about that, and I, I feel guilty about this, and then... You know, they can nod and shake their heads and say, yeah, well, here's some things for you to think about. Here's some ways to deal with the way you feel. But you know, those guilt feelings will come back. What you need is somebody that can help you deal with your guilt. And the one that helps you deal with your guilt is Jesus Christ, the righteous one, who takes away your guilt. And if he's taken away your guilt, you don't have to have any more guilt feelings. Because if the guilt is gone, the feelings should be gone. And if the feelings aren't gone, you just praise God until they go away. And just thank God that he has chosen to forgive you, not because you deserve it, but because he loves you unconditionally. Turn to Psalm 32, if you would. Psalm 32, and we're going to read this, and then we're going to be through. David prayed in Psalm 51, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. If you want to do a study of what it means to confess and to be set free from guilt, study Psalm 32 and Psalm 51. Psalm 32 and verse 1, How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Folks, when God covers your sin, it's covered. Not part of it, all of it. How blessed is a man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. 
When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. Selah. Your hand was heavy upon me. David looked back over that year from the time that he had committed the sin with Bathsheba and it had set up the murder of Uriah. And he looked at how God's presence had been removed from him and how the sense of peace had been removed. And he had gone through all the motions of religion and all the facades, and he had lied to others, and he had lied to himself, and he had lied to God, and God kept pressing his hand down on him, saying, David, come clean. David, come clean. Every time he went and offered a sacrifice, it was a reminder, David, come clean. David, you need to come clean. Come on, get it out. Let's go. Let's deal with it. And every day for one whole year, David said, it was like my body wasted away. I've been pastor here for about nine years. And I can tell you, folks, our countenance gives us away. And some of you, eight years ago, five years ago, three years ago, last year, had a different countenance than you have now. You're like David, you've lost the joy of your salvation. And you're guilty because you've not come clean with God. And the joy is gone, and in its place has become hardness and bitterness and anger, and your face shows it. See, you don't have to tell anybody when guilt is taking over your life. It just begins to come up on the outside. And where there was once a smile and a greeting, there's now looking down at the floor or a sour expression or a defeated life. David said, I look back over my life and I see what that sin did to me because I had tried to deceive others and I had tried to deceive myself and I'd even tried to lie to God and I saw myself in the mirror finally for what I really was and God took it away. Selah, I need to think about that for a while. Selah means pause and think about it. I need to pause and think about what it was like to be out of fellowship with God because you see the most miserable people in Albany, Georgia today are not the lost people who are waking up with a hangover this morning. The most miserable people in Albany, Georgia today are Christians who are not walking in fellowship with God because you know better. You've tasted the goodness of the Lord. You've seen that it was good, but now you don't really taste it. You don't really see it. You need to pause and think about what it used to be like when you walked in fellowship with God in cleansing and relationship with God and what it is now. And God's hand's been heavy on you, not to hurt you, but to bring you to a point of repentance. Then David picks up and says, I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Selah. Let's see now, Lord. I acknowledged and you forgave. I agreed with you. I confessed that I had sin in my life and you took away not only the sin, but you took away the guilt of my sin. Can I tell you what that means? This is going to shake some of you's cage a little bit, but I want to tell you what that means. 
That means that for the rest of their life, David and Bathsheba didn't spend time being guilty and apologizing to one another for what they had allowed to happen in their life. That means they didn't have dinner conversations every week about what would have happened if Uriah had lived or if the baby had lived. That means that David, on that side of the cross, not this side of the cross, that means that David, on that side of the cross, and Bathsheba lived in fellowship with God, not in shame before God. You say, well, that doesn't seem fair. Doesn't have to. Because you see, God, when he forgives and when he takes away guilt, can take it away to such an extent, whether it's Rahab the harlot or Bathsheba or whoever it might be, he can make it the line through which the Son comes and brings forgiveness to all people. You think somewhere in heaven right now, Bathsheba and David are rejoicing that God forgave their sin enough to let him still be the line of Jesus, the Messiah. That's how God takes away sin. And you don't need to walk around with a club beating yourself up about what you did one time. If you've confessed it and come clean before God, then if it comes up again, turn it into prayer and praise to God that it's forgiven. But don't walk around and ask God to forgive you again and again and again and again and again. Stay current with your confession and let God take care of your past. And walk with him in fellowship so that your future is taken care of. David said, I just acknowledged my sin. I just agreed with God. And he took away my iniquity and forgave the guilt of my sin. Boy, I just need to, I tell you, I just need to pause and think about that for a while. So let's pause and think about it while we pray. Mm -hmm.